Romans. We're in chapter 7 as we continue to to follow Paul along um, as he was guided by the Holy Spirit and as we pray that we too are guided by that same Spirit to, to see what the Lord has for us to, to take from His Word this morning. So before we read the Word of the Lord, let's go to the Lord of His Word. Again, our most gracious, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you. We come to you um, humbling ourselves under your word that you would help us to settle our minds, our hearts, to focus on these things, to do the work of listening and to listen well. And we pray that by your spirit, you would apply these things to our hearts that we might be transformed more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So Romans chapter 7, reading verses 7 through 13. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The word of the Lord. So the question that Paul keeps asking and addressing here is, uh, what about the place of the law for the believer? You know, what about behavior, basically? What's our standard uh, should we just say we live by grace and we don't worry about any sort of standards or that we follow the law and we follow it very, very carefully and we have to just, you know, where do we fall in these two different um, places? So he just asked the question because he starts, if you look just back at, um, you go up a verse uh, in chapter 7, in verse 6, he says, but now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So as he talks about dying to the law and things like this, you really get the impression that the law is not good, that the law is something that we don't want to be under. The law is something that's going to kill us. He says here that the law, um, we are are released from the law. The law held us captive. And so he's saying, so you may very well think that what I'm saying is that the law itself is sin. And he says, um, you know, no, absolutely not. May it never be is what he's saying there. May that just not be, no, whatever way you like to say, uh uh-uh, no, never. That's what he's saying. Absolutely not. The law is not sin. But he says, you see how you might come to this conclusion. Because the law for the believer is something that 
holds us and will kill us. So many think about this today. Is the law bad? There was a, a Facebook post, somebody, a, a struggle with one of the, the hymns that, that are, are old in the faith, which is trust and obey, because there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> I really want to read that again, find out what exactly do you mean by that when you're saying that? What do other people mean when you're talking about trusting and obey? Your obedience, you know, your, it's like your relationship in Christ is based on your obedience. So we have to be careful with how we particularly say these things. Um, and then, you know, as a Facebook post, I saw that. And then one of the remarks underneath it is like, well, I didn't think we were under the law at all. I thought we were just under grace. We don't have to worry about the law. We don't think about the law. We don't do these things. And so, you know, it's like there's confusion in the Christian world over a great many things, but there is confusion particularly over the place of the law in the life of a Christian. When somebody begins to, well, I will say this, some churches aren't confused at all. They're just very wrong. Some churches go so far as to be legalistic where it's all about your behavior. And you're like, yeah, those are wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get like that sometimes too. And you fall into a church that is like that. And if you do pretty good, then you can thrive under that sort of legalism. Or you can be in a church just like what we call antinomian. It's like there's no law at all. Do whatever you want to. Love is love. Do what you want to. You got to be happy. I make everybody, don't judge anybody now. Can't do that. You know, it's just all sort of touchy feely. You can tell I'm not in favor of that a whole lot. You know, so one gets to be like, this is the way it is. And a lot of people thrive because they need rules, they need structure. And then other people are like, oh, you can do what you want to do, you can do what you want to do. And then people love that because there's no rules, there's no structure. I can do what I want to do. There's no calling on my life. So what Paul is saying is like, there's a sweet spot in there. There's, there's, there's truth that the law does have a place in the life of a Christian and that we are not under law, but we're under grace. So what are we to do? And this is what Paul is addressing. Is the law sin? So don't fall into that category where you're like, anybody starts talking about the law, you're like, uh-uh-uh-uh, law is bad. So what he's saying is the law is not bad. The non-believer, we're told in Romans 1.18 that Paul wrote in the very first chapter that the non-believer will suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. So as the law comes and confronts a non-believer, what they're going to do with that is just go, nope. I don't want anything to do with God. I don't believe God. I don't want God. I don't have anything to do with it. So as the law does its work on the non-believer, they may feel guilty and they may have a godly sorrow and that will lead to death. But Paul also talks about a, a worldly sorrow which leads to death, but the believer is to have a godly sorrow which leads to life. And so it's kind of interesting how it's the same work of the law on people and the way they respond has to do with what God is doing in the life of the person. If a person is just dead in their trespasses and sins, um, the parable is the sower with the seed. He's throwing the the seed out. He's not saying that the the sower is using bad seed. He's not saying he should have been more careful about where he threw it. He's throwing it everywhere. He's casting the gospel everywhere he goes. But some seed falls on good ground and some seed falls on bad ground. And so that's what makes the difference is who's tilling the soil, 
who's working on the heart, which is where this seed of the gospel lands. And for the non-believer, it's just hard, and they're going to suppress it until God begins to work in the heart of a person that he's calling to himself, and that law begins to do different kinds of work. And this is what Paul starts to talk about. What happens to the law? What happens to a person? You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're outside of Christ. You're guilty. You're born in sin. You're dead in trespasses and sins. You can't really, you might conform yourself outwardly to the law, but you aren't going to obey by faith, which is necessary for God to, to say anything is of value to him. But just living in common grace, living in a society, living with the work of the law written on our hearts even that God gives us, you can have people who can live fairly good external lives that are going to be able to get along in society and stop at red lights and go at green lights and go to speed limit within reason and be able to sit in a movie theater with you without jumping up and choking everybody. It's like people can learn to live in a society. But when the law comes in and says, thou shalt do this and live, be holy as I am holy, be good, be perfect, and then when that begins to seep into a believer's, a non-believer's life, then it becomes like, no, that's not right. And they'll find, you know, and, and that all kinds of psychological defenses that are used, you know, the church is just bad, the church is hypocritical, they've done this to me, they've done that to me, they do this, they do that, I can't believe that because blah, 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 blah. Every excuse they can come up with to suppress the knowledge of God in their unrighteousness. But in the believer's heart, something begins to change. But then there's many Christians today who believe that any talk of obedience in the Christian life is legalism, as if obedience to Christ were a bad thing. So you have to be careful of that. And then there are many people who make excuses for their sin, and they use those excuses to keep themselves out of church, away from the Bible, and away from the actual Jesus, so that they may continue in their sin. My Jesus wouldn't judge anybody like that. It's like, I don't know who your Jesus is, but you need to learn about the one that's in the Bible. Because if you aren't conforming who you believe Jesus to be with who the Bible teaches Jesus to be, then you're just worshiping an idol and naming it Jesus. And lots of people do that as well. I'd be very careful of that. And at times, we all do these things. So we have to say, well, what hope is there for us? And Paul's going to get this too. He's going to say, oh, wretched man that I am. Who will release me from this wretched body of death. Praise be to God in Christ Jesus. That's his hope. That's his solution. Not, I will I'll buckle down on following the law. I will, I will start to live my life better. I will make sure that the bad things I'm doing, I get rid of those and I just start to do good things and I will do this and the better I get, it's like trying to get in better shape before you join the gym. It's like trying to get in better shape before you start to eat better or something. You know, it's that sort of thing. You have to have the Holy Spirit working in and through your life and then um, these, that's where change comes through. It's a tricky thing because... On the one hand, I'm going to tell you it's all by grace. And on the other hand, I'm going to say there are behavioral, behavioral standards that we're held to. And what do you mean by held to? And what I'm saying is you have children and you want your children to behave. And so you do the best you can to help your children to behave. If they're doing bad things to other children, you're going to do what you... But you, you aren't loving them because, I mean, as human beings and we're not necessarily always great parents, we might tend to love somebody better when they behave more like we want them to. 
and we might not love somebody quite as much when they don't. But that's a problem with us. So what we need to do is, as parents, you love your children, and you desire for them to behave properly. And so God the Father loves us and desires for us to behave properly because he knows if we go running through the streets with our eyes closed and the traffic is flying that we're going to get hit by a car and that's not going to be good for us. But he also knows sometimes you just need to let that kid do that thing. You know, you don't want them run down the street and get killed. But there's sometimes God turns us over to our sin so that we can taste how awful it is, and then realize that we need to do better. Not for him to love us better. If you can just get justification, this is what Paul's trying to say to us, and what the Holy Spirit is telling us. Justification is, in Christ Jesus, you have been declared completely righteous, innocent in his eyes, in his court. Done. Innocent. You're in. You're adopted into his family. Sanctification is two types of that. One is instantaneous. You've been set apart for his purposes. You are sanctified. You are holy. You have been given that status. But then there's the other thing we call progressive sanctification, which is we continue to die to sin. We continue to live to righteousness more and more so that we do become more and more conformed to the likeness and image of Christ. We should be changing. The gospel should make a difference in our lives. But you have to be careful about putting the cart before the horse. So Paul is telling us this far in Romans that the only way to be seen as righteous in the eyes of God Almighty is through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And he's saying there's basically three types of people. Those who try to please God through obedience. Those who don't care about pleasing God at all. And those who rest in the finished work of Jesus on the cross for our sins and seek the Father in faith through the Holy Spirit because he has revealed himself to us. Paul says you cannot earn your way into heaven. You cannot earn the Father's love. You cannot keep the law. You cannot be good enough to desire any blessing. And it all has to be by grace. And grace is the opposite of earned wages. Grace is freely giving you all things. Because by faith in Jesus Christ, you have died with Christ on his cross and you have been risen with him to new life. If we've been saved from sin, how can we continue to desire to live in it? That's the issue in the Christian life. What a burden we bear in running from God in our sin. And Paul knows that struggle. So in Romans 7, if you're going to understand what Paul is saying, you have to understand Paul. Because Paul's saying a lot of stuff, and it's like, you know, some of you might be like, well, who's Paul? Well, he used to be called Saul. He got his name changed. They do that sometimes in the Bible. But Saul's a bad guy. He, he thought he was a good guy, but he's a bad guy. So we're going to look at a little bit of Paul's life. So just um, turn to Acts. It's uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7. You should have a table of contents in the beginning of your Bible. It's very helpful if you, can, if you have one to be able to, to open it up and, and follow along. But there's lots of debate, whether you know it or not, in Acts chapter 7 about who's Paul talking about. You know, so some people want to maintain that, that um, Paul... I think what you have to be careful when you're, when you're reading about Paul, you let Paul speak for himself, and you also recognize there's only one sinless person that ever existed, and that was 
Jesus Christ so that Paul does not become a sinless person after he's been saved. Because if Paul could do it, you could do it. And if that's the standard, Paul is like, let's get off of this thing we're talking about and remember you're under the law of grace. And that is what changes a person. So in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, it was deep into Acts chapter 7. So verse 51, Paul is speaking. He says this, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute as they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, now this is Stephen that's speaking there. He's telling them that, you know, you guys are, you're not following Christ. You always did this. And then he says, now when they heard these things that Stephen was speaking, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So you have to picture it. Don't just hear it. So what's happening is Stephen, the first deacon, he's out there. He's got a crowd that's gathered. He's preaching the gospel to the Jewish people that all believe and they're somewhat self-righteous. We're going to see they're extremely self-righteous. They're using the law not to show them how badly they need God's grace. They're using the law to say, look how good we are. I can be saved by keeping the law. And here comes Stephen saying, you're getting it all wrong. You need to believe in Jesus Christ. And then they're getting mad at him and he's like you guys always do this you're always killing the prophets that God sends to you why do you do it you've always done this and you're continuing to do it I didn't like that so they get very angry and then Stephen is standing there and it says in verse 57 they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him so you're preaching the gospel and you've kind of been a little rough on these people and they're like ready to tear you apart and they start rushing together at him. And he sees this vision. Heavens are open. He sees Christ standing at the right hand of God the Father. And so they rush at him. And then they cast him out of the city. They've grabbed him. They're dragging him out of the city because they're supposed to. They've got him all the way out of the city. And they're throwing him down. And then they stone him. Which means they've picked up stones that are about the size that they think this one will work. Maybe I need to get a few more because one's probably not going to do it. And what we're going to do with these stones is I'm going to throw this in such a way. It's not like a, a snowball fight. Eh, oh, eh, oh, it is. I will, excuse me, children. I will kill this person with this stone. And these other people will help me with it, which means I've got to get a stone that I can murder somebody with. I need to pick it up with sufficient strength. I need to be aiming clearly enough. I need to make sure I'm not hitting other people. I need to throw it with all of my might so that I might actually crush his head and kill the man. That's what we're talking about. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is Paul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Remember what's happening with him. And he's crying out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees. So he was standing. 
Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Which is a nice way for the Bible to say he died. And Saul approved his execution. So this is Saul. Man preaching the gospel. Saul, basically, like he's a Pharisee. They're laying the garments at his feet. He's giving them official... Um, authority to do this and he's saying it's good and he's now Paul's writing Romans and these other books and he's preaching the gospel and he's got that on his conscience and he has people that are doing that same thing to him and he has Stephen's example who said basically Father forgive them they know not what they do because Stephen had Christ's example on the cross to say, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Asking forgiveness for people who have not even asked forgiveness, but to say, Father, they don't know what they're doing. Stephen saying, don't hold this against them. And now Saul, Paul, looking back and thinking this. And then in verse 8, chapter 8 again, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout all the regions of Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering into house after a house. Do you go there? Do you go to 6th Street? Do you go to that church? Are you a Christian? You're one. You're one of them. So he goes in and he is ravaging the church, entering house after house, and he drags off men and women and committed them to prison. This is what Paul did. And then we go to Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, and so other things happen. Now we go back to Saul again. Remember, this is Paul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. That's what Saul's doing. I mean, this is where he, he's not just a guy that doesn't like it and he's going to blast off a few mean tweets. This guy is literally breathing threats and murder and has the ability to carry it out against who? The disciples of the Lord. The people who are following Christ. So he goes to the high priest and he asks him for letters from the synagogue that any might be found that are belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now he went on his way and he approached Damascus and then suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Now you got to picture this again. This guy, murdering threat. This guy hates Christians. It's a terrible thing because they're opposing what he believes God to be teaching. He thinks he's following God. Now all of a sudden, this light from heaven shines all around him. And then he falls to the ground and he heard a voice and it said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice too, when you're persecuted, Christ takes it personally. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, well, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And so it goes on and talks about Ananias, who's told about this. And Ananias, in verse 17, is like, 
Well, in verse 16, he's telling Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so to you so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. He's been converted. This guy did all these things. He's been converted. So for some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And he has not come here for the purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And then in Acts chapter 22, beginning of verse 1, Paul is being questioned for the people and for the king. He says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Sicilia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, this is a big deal. Gamaliel is one of these main teachers. According to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are to this day. Being zealous for God. That means I love God. I want to do what God says. I'm, he's, he was Gamaliel's student. He's a Pharisee. He has this great zeal for God. And he's being taught about all these things. And then he said, I persecuted the, this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and journey toward Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. In verse 17, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And saw him saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. This is still in his mind. This is still there. And this is still how evil of a man he was. And I came across this commentator um, I don't know much about him. I see his name. But he's uh, Alexander McLaren, and he writes this. Paul was there when Stephen was stoned to death and watched their clothes and approved what they did and left breathing out threats and slaughter. He was determined in God's name to destroy this new Christian uprising. He hated the idea of Jesus and all who would spread this lie. Paul rode out of Jerusalem, believing Jesus Christ to be dead, and his resurrection a lie. But he staggers into Damascus, blind but seeing, and knowing that Jesus Christ lives and reigns. So this is the transformation that took place for Paul, was to go from breathing, murderous, ravaging ideas to the church. And then he's saved, and now he says, you need to hear what I had to say about the law. And so we look at Galatians chapter 1. And I try not to do too much of this jumping around in the Bible, but I really want you to hear Paul as he's speaking to us this morning. And in Galatians chapter 1, verse 11, he says, 
I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Now, I hope you can remember what was happening, what he's saying in Romans is, when I learned what it was to covet, when the law said not to covet, it started to work all kinds of covetousness in me. And so that what Paul is doing is he's taking the law and he wants to obey the law perfectly, better than anybody else can. When it says not to be covetous, he's like, oh, I won't be covetous. What I'm going to be, and the word covetous just means desire. When it says do not covet, it just means do not desire what? Wrong things. Don't desire your neighbor's wife. Don't desire your neighbor's house. Don't set your heart on these things. But what Paul started to do was he coveted prestige. Paul began to covet being the best. Paul began to covet perfect righteousness. He began to covet those things, and he saw it all externally. It was all in external behavior. And so what he's saying is, I know what it's like to try hard to be good. And I got you all beat because I did it. I was good according to the law. I did everything that the law said for me to do. And then in verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born... Who, he who called me by his grace, he didn't call him because, Paul, you're doing such a good job there, man. I think I'm going to call you. Where, where did Paul's obedience lead him? To murdering Christians. That's where your personal, external, self-righteous will lead you is the wages of sin is death because you cannot obey the law externally. It is an inward heart thing. So he was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And then in Philippians, so Galatians, just go two books over, Ephesians, and then Philippians chapter 3, beginning verse 2, he's saying, hey, you guys need to watch out for these people who are preaching the law, but they don't know God. And that's what we had to be careful for. Look out for the dogs, he calls them. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we... Believers are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now he's going to tell you about how he was bragging. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the most respected of the tribes. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. That was the strictest one, man. If you were a Pharisee, that was, that you, you, you big time following the law. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. That's how zealous I was for God. I persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. You hear what he's saying? And that's pride. But externally, he felt, and he probably did a very good job of keeping all these external rules. All the external rules. Indeed, he says, but every gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. All that, I'm counting as loss. So maybe what you're doing is trying to be good. Maybe you're trying hard to follow the rules. 
And that's, that's good to follow the rules for the right reason. But if what happens is you begin to follow the rules just because you're trying to follow the rules, what's going to happen is you're going to run into your inability. I'm, I can't do it. I'm not good enough. And then without the Holy Spirit working within you, what's going to happen with that is I am terrible. I am awful. I deserve nothing. I, and then you begin to go one direction or another. You go to Christ for help, or you go deeper into your sin, deeper into the world. You run, you run, you run, and you say, that's enough. I got, I got no part of that. I'm not good enough. Or everybody else is, or you do the other thing. It's like, there are a bunch of jerks and hypocrites. They're just telling me, how, who, who are they to be telling me how to live and what to do? And that's what we do. We're messed up psychological people. Somebody tells you not to do something, you know it. just their first reaction is, I don't know, who are you tell me what to do? Who are you tell me not what to do? You know, it's like nobody likes to be told what to do. And so we have to be careful because what Paul said he did was, I was a good boy. I did it all. I worked harder than anybody else. I achieved what all the Pharisees were trying to achieve. And I did it. And I started to persecute God. That's how the law through sin, the law was good. So here's what he says. Everything I gained, I now count all that is lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. He's, he obeyed, but he didn't know Jesus. And he says, that's not a good place to be. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them rubbish. And that's almost a bad word there. It's just, it's just it's, wow, it's bad stuff. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. So he's not just saying, I'm just going to lay here dead. It's like Jesus came to life. He's bringing me to life. What does life look like for Paul? And what life is going to look like begins to look like true obedience to the law, which is actually love the Lord thy God with all the heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And you do these things from a heart of understanding. It's like, I'm not gaining anything from this. I'm not better than these other people. I'm not trying to do this because I have to. I just have a heart to follow Christ. I just want to be like Christ. I just want God in my life. I want to be different. I want to do better. I want to understand more about forgiveness and mercy and grace and then help me to be better like that with other people that I may, he says here, share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And he, and he goes on and he talks about these things. In verse 17 says, brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've told you and now tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. And so just to go back to Romans, after hearing these things, and we're again back to Romans chapter 7, and then listen to what he says, 
because this is what he gets when he gets the gospel. And I'm just going to read this to you from 2 Corinthians 4. If our gospel is veiled, if other people can't see it, it's veiled to those who are perishing. If people don't understand the gospel, it's because they're dying. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not for us. We're jars of clay. We're fragile. We're weak. We have cracks. But if you see any good in us, if you see anything that's at work, it's because it's Jesus Christ. Because we are weak. So in 7, what shall we say then? It's Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. If it hadn't been for the law... I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said you shall not covet. But then he recognizes this because of what God's done in his life, because he was a Pharisee and he was blameless. But he says, you know what? Sin seized an opportunity through that commandment and produced in me all kinds of covetousness. He didn't see it. He thought he was blameless. But now he saves like, uh, that thing, don't covet. I got all kinds of covetousness. I covet people who don't covet. I covet the law. I covet being the, it's like coveting just is like, what do you desire? You got all kinds of, un- and he just says, I recognize it now. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was alive apart from the law. He thought he was alive. This is what he's saying. He says, I was alive apart from the law. But then the law, because he was doing all external stuff, but the real work of the law, when the commandment came, when Jesus came and said, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? When the law finally started to work in the life of a believer, when a person is beginning to be brought back to life by the law, when the commandment came, sin came and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to me death. In the Old Testament, it says, do these things and you shall live. And he did them. And then he realized, I'm only doing them externally. That law is killing me, which is what it was meant to do, to drive you to Christ the whole time. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. And he's using this words from the Garden of Eve. Remember what the serpent did? He deceived Eve and said, you can be like God. You can decide for yourself what is right and what is wrong. God doesn't want what's best for you. The reason God is telling you to not eat from that one tree is because he knows when you do, you're going to be like him. You can't trust God. You can't trust him. And Paul was saying, I wasn't trusting God, I was trusting myself. And that's how sin deceived me, and then through it, killed me. Just like it killed Adam and Eve, it killed me. He said, I was dead. And he's just talking from a perspective. I was dead inside, and I thought I was alive. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good, which means we can study it, we can obey it, we can listen to it, we should. But it's all only from Christ. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Now who wants to be shown they're sinful beyond measure? As believers, that's where you started. I am sinful beyond measure. How do you know that? The law. So you're going to start keeping the law now that you realize you're sinful beyond measure? No, I'm going to cling to Christ. I'm going to die to sin and live to righteousness. I'm going to follow the throne of grace. I'm going to live by grace. I'm going to live by faith alone. And then strange things start to happen and your life changes and you kind of start to do better. 
and you want to do better. And you want to be around other people who are going to challenge you to do better. But they're not going to say, hey, man, you got to do better. They're going to be like, man, cheer up. You're worse than you think you are. God's grace is where you ever imagined. There's forgiveness at the foot of the cross. There's grace. There's mercy. There's love. But if you look at that and you respond from your sin to people who are trying to call you back to Christ and you say, I don't care what you say. I don't care what Jesus says. I don't care what the Bible says. I'm going to go my own way. The church has no response at all. And no ability to be able to say anything, but I hate this for you. But you're not a part of Christ when you say that kind of thing. And you're going to be turned over to him for the destruction of the flesh so that hopefully you will realize that you're living in darkness and you will return and you will come back. Not because I'm good enough now, but because now you realize you're not good enough and you do need Christ. Obedience is such a terrible word. But there's nothing worse than a disobedient servant. You just keep messing everything up. But God loves those who are his. And he invites all of his people to come to the table. And he says, because you need me. I'm not, he's not asking us to, to lay there, but what he's saying is take up your cross and follow me. So we do these things. And we have to do them from this heart that, just get the love of God straight. You, I am a sinner. I am dead in my sin. With apart from Christ, I am nothing. I am worse than nothing. Father God, please, through Christ Jesus, wash me clean of my sin, and I will be clean. And you start there. And you stay there. And then try to be like Jesus as you go along. And you'll see that that's what ends up happening. But you got to be in the Word. You need to be in church. You need to be partaking of these things. Let's pray. Father God, we want to be better and we'll try hard to be better and then we end up working so hard to be better that we become worse and we start to be on top of other people trying to make them be better. Lord, help us just to be loving and gracious and good, pointing people to the truth, speaking and believing the truth in love, that we might believe in you and follow you, knowing that your commandments are not burdensome, but they are helpful. And that we know as believers that when we follow you, there is a blessing that comes from that. But there's also just blessing that comes from you, from being in you. So Lord, we pray that you will help us to be blessed by following you, knowing that we are blessed because we're in you. And these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.